I don't know if you've been paying attention to what's been going on this week, this past week, I should say, but there's some things that have happened the Holy Spirit's used in my life. I have a, a burden for something I want to talk to you about today. You probably guess what it is when I read to you what the May 15, 2012 edition of the New Zealand Herald had. Yes, that was May 15. The title of the article was, Key Hedges Bets on Gay Marriage. Here's what the New Zealand Herald had to say, quote, Prime Minister John Key says he would support a bill to legalize same-sex marriage at its initial stage, but will not guarantee his support would continue through to the final reading that would see it become law. In the past, Mr. Key did vote against a bill that would have defined marriage as between a man and a woman. Labor leader David Shearer has said he supports marriage equality. And Labor MP Louisa Wall is drafting a member's bill on the issue, which she hopes to put in the ballot after Parliament returns next week. End quote. Well, as if that wasn't bad enough, last week I also heard about President Obama. He's, he's come out and said that he can accept and stand behind same-sex marriage. This change is not restricted solely to the President of the United States, by the way. Uh, gay advocates um, have been uh, pushing their rights for many, many years now. Uh, they've tirelessly worked to change the public perception of same-sex couples over the last, in fact, 15 to 25 years. The United States has done a, a near 180-degree turn on this particular issue. They've attempted to sanitize and normalize homosexuality. It's been a long, drawn-out, slow process, but they're winning. There have been countless actors, musicians, athletes, politicians who've publicly uh, come out and spoken in favor of gay rights. Many from these same spheres have uh, themselves disclosed uh, to the public that they themselves are gay. And I don't particularly like that word, but since many people use the word gay, I'm going to run with that. It's become commonplace, in fact, in, in television shows and movies, they have gay characters. In fact, uh, I don't watch this, but uh, uh, from what I've heard, there's a character called Oscar in the show The Office. And uh, so they have an agenda they're pushing, and they're, they're even putting it in TV shows and movies to try to change people's perception. And now the national broadcasting company in the United States is set to uh, debut a new show, which I, I just heard about this past week, called The New Normal. The New Normal. Any of you heard about that? Here, here's how the plot essentially goes. Two guys are married and, of course, can't have a child of their own, so they hire a surrogate to begin their family. That's kind of the basic plot of The New Normal. And so while it may not yet be the new normal in, in, uh, in your life and in, in all the cultures of the world, but it, that's, that's what they're pushing. Homosexuality is surely becoming more, more and more prevalent. They're pushing their way, and we have government leaders uh, becoming more accepting of the gay rights agenda. But what does this mean for us as Christians? By the way, I'm not going to propose to you that, that the solution is government, okay? <laughs> uh, we, we, we look to government too often. That's not the solution. So what does this mean for us as Christians? Number one, it means we better get justification and sanctification clear. Let me explain myself, all right? Justification and sanctification are not the same thing. Justification is when God declares a sinner to be innocent, and not only innocent, but has Christ's righteousness imputed to him. Sanctification is that process after you become a believer when you are continually becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Too often, uh, the, the church, you know, they, you know the, the aim of, of the church is to justify people in the church and sanctify the world. I hope you got a problem with that. That's a bit like the, car, the cart before the horse. The world is not going to keep the Ten Commandments. An unbeliever cannot be sanctified. 
an unbeliever is not going to walk in the Spirit. They're not going to glorify God. And the reason they're not going to do any of those things is because they can't. They don't have the Holy Spirit residing within them. They're unbelievers. And you know what? They're going to act like unbelievers. So we shouldn't be surprised when unbelievers, you know, live this way and advocate the gay rights. The transformation into Christ's likeness comes from being declared not guilty and then declared righteous by God. That's how transformation comes. It's not by, by uh, you, know, you know, trying to force our government to make laws. That's not how it's going to happen. So this comes by the merit of Christ then, doesn't it? Transformation into Christ's likeness will come through the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we can't expect unbelievers to look and act like believers. So I don't, sadly, too many churches are attempting to do that. That's not the solution. So we need to get these theological categories straight in our own minds, because sadly, our, our methodology is coming from our theology. At least it should. And sadly, the churches who think they're going to sanctify the world and and make the world, you know, stop believing in homosexuality or gay rights agenda, with, without the gospel, has got the cart before the horse. So number one, we need to get justification and sanctification clear. Number two, what does this mean for the Christian? It means we better get clear about the character of God. The problem is, is people don't know God. Many people say this, that God made me this way and he wouldn't want me to be unhappy. Is that true? Did God make people homosexuals? The issue is not as much about the morality of the unbeliever, but the character of God here. Who is God? How did God create us? (laughs) All right? Why did God create us? How does he communicate what morality is? How do we know what God values? These are important questions that we need to know. If you don't know the answer to those, then you're probably not going to come out on the right, correct side of the gay rights agenda. So all of those questions should drive us back to the Word of God then, right? Because that's where you're going to find the answers. Yes, the Bible says that God is love. 1 John says so. But guess what? God's love is characterized by his holiness and truth. You cannot know or experience the love of God apart from truth. In order to feel his love, you've got to know him. So we better get clear about the character of God. Well, what does this mean for the Christian? Number three, we better be clear about the problem. We're not clear about the problem, many of us. Too often, Christians talk like it's their job to turn a homosexual into a heterosexual. That's not our job. (laughs) In fact, you can't do that. We can't just get them to be straight and then say that, hey, our work is done because they're straight. What is the church's great commission anyway? Okay, What is the church's great commission? The church's commission is to make disciples of Christ, not not to make them a heterosexual. Okay? If you do make a disciple of Christ, by the way, they will be a heterosexual. Okay? All right? But again, it's changing the heart. So this means we want to see all sexual sinners become worshipers of Jesus Christ. So this, of course, would include fornicators, adulterers, porn addicts, the homosexuals, and whatever, whatever other categories out there that I'm sure I don't even know all of them. So the goal is to become a believer, not to become a heterosexual. The goal is to, to turn someone from worshiping themselves to someone who worships God and only God. You see, that's a much more important issue, a much bigger issue. So the central issue here is worship. It's worship. Or another way the Bible puts it is idolatry. The central issue is idolatry. Who are we and what are other people worshiping? So the answer then to our idolatry and our worship problem is what? The gospel. The gospel is the solution. 
So we, need, we better be clear about the problem. Number four, what does this mean for us as Christians? We better be clear about our tone. We better be clear about a tone of voice. How, how we say, what, not only what we say, but how, how do we say it, okay? You know, the Bible talks about speaking the truth in love. Okay, it's important you do both of those. Let me ask you, can you lovingly engage a homosexual with the gospel in a tactful and faithful way? Can you love that person? We should. The problem is our pride often gets in the way. We, we often forget where we've come from. We, we forget that we need God's grace, just like that individual does. The reality is, who among us is not needy of God's grace? Everyone is. So we've got to lovingly and faithfully talk to other people. The reality is, you can't speak the words of grace and truth to someone who is straight or gay, for that fact. You need to ask God to, to give you a big heart, a compassionate, loving heart. If, I mean, if you, can't, if you can't talk to someone who is a heterosexual or a homosexual without yelling and screaming and saying all sorts of nasty things, then, then you've got a heart issue. So what do we need to do? We need to ask God to shake us of our pride and work gospel compassion into us then, don't we? So those are some things that we need to do as Christians. Well, part of the central problem here is what is marriage? What is marriage? We, I, I just read to you that, that John Key, for example, he was not willing to, to put in New, the New Zealand government a clear definition of what is marriage. I'm glad there are some states in the United States who have, who have, defined, have clearly defined marriage according to what the Bible says. So what is marriage? We need to know that, don't we? Because that's, that's one of the, the foundational issues of this problem. Well, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Because the reality is God defines what is marriage. Government doesn't define marriage. God does. Genesis chapter 1. How would you define marriage? I hope you define it the way God does here. Look at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 27. Verse 27. I'm just going to read this one verse. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. That's a very succinct, good summary of the definition of what is marriage. Marriage is the fundamental institution, by the way, of all human society. It was established by God at creation here. Uh, and, and we see here, this is when God first created the first human beings. And notice that how God made the first human beings, according to Genesis 1.27. They were created what? Male and female. Obviously, those are two different things, right? God didn't create Adam and Steve... He created Adam and Eve. Marriage begins, by the way, with a commitment. Number one, before God. But often people have these wedding ceremonies, and rightfully so. It's, it's not just a commitment before God, but it's a commitment before society. These witnesses that are often there that you're going to be husband and wife for your life. In Malachi 2.14, marriage is viewed as a covenant commitment in which God stands as a witness. That's what it says. He's the witness. Jesus says that a married couple constitutes a unity that God has joined together, Jesus said in Matthew 19. Therefore, because of that then, when a, when a marriage occurs, what's going on? We have a, a man and a woman, just one man and just one woman, they, they, be, they become one, they have a new status before God. And so God considers them to be husband and wife together. I think it's important that there's some kind of a public 
commitment that, that's involved in the marriage process. Uh, society needs to know that, hey, this, this couple have committed themselves together. They are man and wife. They're not just, you know, shacking up together somewhere and, and living together. No, they, they have committed themselves to one another. Sadly, there's too much shacking going on in, in our society today, right? We're, we're just, you know, just live together, no commitment. Sexual intercourse alone does not constitute a marriage. In fact, Jesus made that quite clear, okay? Just because some guy and some woman are living together, it doesn't make them a committed married couple. That does not constitute a marriage. In fact, Jesus, when he was talking to the woman at the well in Samaria, uh, he said, you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. So Jesus obviously understood and makes it quite clear there, just because you have sex doesn't make you a married couple. She was living with this person, but that did not mean that she was actually married to him. There was no public commitment recognized by God or the community that she was living in. So what is marriage? Well, marriage is far more than just, just a man and a wife being committed together and the community recognizing them as man and wife. It's far more than that. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5 makes it quite clear that marriage is a picture of the covenantal relationship between Christ and his bride. Who's the bride? Well, Ephesians 5 says that this mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the mystery is what? Christ and the bride is the bride is the church. Christ is going to marry the church. That's his bride. And so every time a man and a woman come together and commit themselves together for life and marriage, they're showing a picture of something that's far greater and more lasting. Because the reality is, you know, the church will last forever. The bride of Christ will last forever. And Jesus will always be married to his bride. Well, who originally designed marriage? Who originally designed it? Well, we just read where it started. And the answer to who originally designed marriage is that God did. It was God's idea. It wasn't man's idea. It wasn't Adam's idea. It was God's idea. If you look at the first chapter of the Bible, it's quite clear. We just read Genesis 1.27. It says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. So the dividing of the human race... Um, we see God making two complementary sexes here. And he's the one who brought them together. And by the way, you got this connection going on here in verse 27. of The image of God, God is portraying his image with a man and a woman. Why did God not just make a man? He could have done that. There's, there's something about his image, which I'm not going to get into right now. Something about his image, of course he's a trinity which doesn't exactly match up to a man and a woman, of course. But there's something about God's image. God decided, I'm going to make a man and a woman to portray his image. And this man and this woman, two separate identities, come together as one, just similar to the, uh, the Trinity. And Genesis 2 describes in more detail the process that we, we just read about here in verse 27. If you look at chapter 2, uh, verse 18, look at verse 18. Here's what God said. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God obviously knew it wasn't uh, the best situation for Adam to be all by himself. So what did God do? He made him a helper. And then Genesis goes on here to uh, apply the example of Adam and Eve to all marriages. So they're the beginning, and they're the example for all marriages. Look at verse 24. Look at verse 24, because it says, Based on Adam and Eve in their marriage, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This one flesh union is 
Some people don't understand. It is, it is kind of hard to understand in some ways. But it was established as the pattern for marriage in general. By the way, Jesus and the Apostle Paul, both of them quote the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 passages here. They obviously knew it and they believed it, Jesus and the Apostle Paul. And they're quoting it as the normal pattern that God expects of all marriages. That's interesting. So we have both Jesus and Paul. They, they're assuming, if you will, the logic of sexual intercourse implied here in the book of Genesis. A sexual bond we have going on here between a man and a woman. And it requires two people. Not just uh, one person, of course. Not multiple people. We have different sexual halves here. God says we have a man and his wife being brought together into this one flesh union. Well, this is further emphasized if, as we uh, look at the creation story here. We have Eve coming along. She's the first woman. Where does she come from? God makes her different from Adam. Adam's, you know, God, God creates Adam, but... Look what, look what the Bible says where Eve comes from. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore. And whenever you see a therefore, you need to ask, What is it therefore? Well, it's there because of what we just read. So that's the beginning. That's the model which shows what all other marriages should look like. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so the word therefore is connecting the making of Eve, who was made from a part of Adam, and then you got this uh, with the, the, the one flesh Union between a man and a woman in marriage. So it's the reunion of two parts of a whole. It's not a, another man who is the missing part here, right? It's not Adam and Steve. The woman is the missing part. Well, we've got to ask the question, are there any prohibited sexual relations? Are there anything that's actually prohibited according to God? Okay, God said the marriage bed is honorable in the book of Hebrews, but is there anything that's actually prohibited by God? Yes, the answer is yes. Consistent with the pattern we see in Genesis 1 and 2 here, the Bible says that sexual intercourse outside of marriage and outside of the marriage relationship, which is between one man and one woman, is actually prohibited. All sexual relationships outside of that one woman, one man relationship is prohibited. Let me just give you some examples. Okay, you know the one in the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not commit adultery. And by the way, Jesus reaffirmed that in the New Testament. Jesus believed that we shouldn't commit adultery because that, that's not loving to our fellow man. It's not loving God either. Uh, in addition, other specific kinds of sexual intercourse outside of marriage are prohibited. There's various things mentioned, such as prostitution, incest, and even bestiality. If you don't know what bestiality is, the idea is having sex with a beast, with an animal. So homosexual conduct is also viewed as a sin in several passages. Okay? Did you hear me? I said it. I said it God calls it a sin. For example, in Leviticus chapter 18, it's uh, on the screen here. It says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. You say, what's an abomination? Well, that's just an action that's extremely displeasing to God, all right? <laughs> Let me put it that way. Something that God hates, in other words. And then God goes on to say in chapter 20, verse 13, that if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, this very detestable action, God calls it. And by the way, it's interesting to note when, when you read uh, the Bible that th these prohibitions, these sins are grouped with other sexual sins. 
The sin of homosexuality is actually grouped with incest, adultery, and bestiality. They go hand in hand. Then in the New Testament, Paul speaks of homosexual conduct. What does the New Testament have to say? Because some people, some people like to say, well, you know, that's Old Testament. <laughs> you know, God's changed. Really? All right, well, let's see what the New Testament says. All right, look at Romans chapter 1. Turn to Romans chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, I did put it on the screen, but I prefer you looking at your Bible. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Everyone looking at Romans 1? Okay, look at verse 26. Romans 1, 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Let me just talk about this, these two verses for a moment. Notice the phrase I underlined for you there. Contrary to nature. What does that mean? Contrary to nature. It means that homosexual conduct doesn't represent what God intended in the beginning. It's contrary to what he created man and woman to do. God created men and women to be together. (laughs) And if they're not doing what God created them to do, then it's contrary to nature, God calls it. Homosexual desires, God, notice, God calls them dishonorable. Homosexual desires, God calls dishonorable. And it's, it's both um, because it's contrary to God's purpose and because they treat a person's biological sex as only half of what it is. There's a reason why that, that TV show that's coming up where you've got two guys who are married together, it, there's a reason why they can't have children. It's contrary to nature. It's not the way God designed it. So what do they have to do? They, get, they have to go and get a surrogate mother so they can so-called have children. So it goes against logic, it goes against nature, and of course it goes against God's word. While the logic of a heterosexual bond is that of bringing together the two and only two different and complementary sexual halves into a sexual union, the logic here of a sexual bond is that another person of the same sex complements and then fills what is lacking in the same sex. There's a reason why Adam needed a helper. And by the way, it's interesting, when you read Genesis, at what point did he notice there was something missing? God actually had to tell him to do something. God had to tell him, you go and name the animals. All right, so he's watching, God brings the animals by, and Adam's naming the animals. He sees Mr. and Mrs. Lion. It wasn't Mr. and Mrs. Lion. It was Mr. and Mrs. Lion, and Mr. and Mrs. Cheetah, and Mr. and Mrs. Elephant, and Mr. and Mrs. Hippo. And they all, they all go, and Adam's naming them. And after doing that whole exercise, then he's like, you know, um, none of those animals are suitable for me. There's nobody like me here. So God had to make one that was suitable for him. Praise God for that, right? The logic of sexual intercourse requires a sexual complement then, right? That's kind of logical. Well, does the Bible address the question of homosexual attitudes and desires? Because some people think, you know, I, you know, I can't help myself. It's, it's, it's just this desire. You know, I can't get rid of this desire. Well, it needs to be remembered that God ultimately requires moral perfection, okay? Not only in human actions, but also in the attitudes of our hearts, God still requires moral perfection. In fact, we're going to read, when we start preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it quite clear, right? For example, don't murder. But Jesus says, you can murder in your mind. You can hate somebody and and murder them with your mind, so to speak. So that's just one example. The Bible prohibits, of course, not only adultery, but also the desire for adultery. 
For example, God says that we're not to, men are not to lust after other women. Why is that? Well, that's because the Bible says the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Okay? God cares not just what we do, but God also cares what we're thinking. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of what's going on in our mind, that's where the real battle is, is what we're going to end up doing. So Scripture teaches that any desire to break God's commandments is viewed as wrong in God's sight then. It doesn't matter if you actually you know, stopped your, yourself from the action. God cares what we're thinking. Is there that desire? By the way, it's not, it's not wrong to be tempted. Okay, you understand that? But when, when you're, if you're trying to fulfill your desires in your mind, that temptation comes into your mind and you take that ball and run with it, and you start meditating and dwelling upon that, that temptation, then, then it becomes a problem. So it's not surprising homosexual desires are viewed as contrary to God's will then. Even the desire. If, if somebody's continually meditating on that, then it's sin. So what is the Bible's solution regarding homosexuality? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Some people think, hey, you know, I've got, you know, hey, I didn't actually commit the act of homosexuality, but I've got this desire. And some people think it's, it's a God-given desire, even. Well, let's, let's find out what the Bible's solution is regarding homosexuality. And we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Here's what uh, the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth. He says, remember, this is a church he's writing to. Okay? Church is made of believers. And he says in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We'll stop there. Well, as with every other sin... Mentioned in God's Word, the Bible's solution to homosexuality, is it's the same with every sin. What do, you, what do you do with sin? God calls us to repent. He calls us to forsake our sin. He calls us to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. We are to, to, to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us. And then we need the Holy Spirit's enabling by God's grace to change. So what's going on here? Well, we see after Paul talks about the sexually immoral and the adulterers, notice what comes next. It actually says men who practice homosexuality. And then it mentions other things such as the thieves and the drunkards. But Paul tells the Corinthian Christians here in verse 11, such were some of you. So he's talking to people in the church at Corinth these guys were thieves and robbers and, and drunks, and some of them were obviously homosexuals, former, sorry, former homosexuals. And they were in the church. And then he goes on to tell them that really that we see the solution to all sin here. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the solution to all sin. Okay? Homosexuality is no different from any other sin that you and I deal with. And so this implies that some former homosexuals here obviously were, were members in the church of Corinth. They, they obviously had left their previous lifestyle. And then obviously by the power of the Holy Spirit, they, they're seeking to live lives of sexual purity. 
we don't know if, if any of them were married or not. That's not the important thing. God does apparently call some to be single. Okay? It's not God's will for everyone to be married. But uh, the, these people were obviously living pure lives. They had changed because they were washed. So it's important that we always uh, show love and we show compassion toward those who are actually engaged in the homosexual conduct. Okay? Uh, I, I don't know about you, but sadly, um, I, I was very self-righteous growing up. Had wrong attitudes. Uh, there, there were certain groups of people. Homosexuals were included in, the, in these kind of people who, who you, know, you, just, you didn't associate with. Right? You know, as, as if that particular sin is worse than any other kind of sin. I didn't have a very good attitude, a very pharisaical kind of attitude. So I, I, didn't, I, I didn't actually know anyone, didn't, never even witnessed as far as I know to any of those kind of people. But, but the reality is we need to have love and compassion for these type of people, no matter what their sin is. We need to extend friendship to them if God so gives us the opportunities. And by the way, when you extend friendship with them, that doesn't mean that you... You, you, you know, you say, okay, you know, God accepts your sin, accepts you just the way you are. No, that, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. But what we need to do is, while God doesn't accept your conduct, He doesn't accept your sin, you need to offer hope. There's always hope with sin, because God can change. He can forgive sin. He can, he can wash that sin away. Uh, there are, I, I have heard of some homosexuals who do want to change their lifestyles. They want to change their conduct. They just feel trapped. Well, don't you have the answer? Don't you have the solution? Can you love them enough to to offer them the hope and the change that God gives to them? I hope you do. By the way, long-term change, no matter what sin you and I are involved with or somebody else is involved with, often long-term change is going to require help and encouragement. This is one, guy, one reason why God says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but instead you meet together so you can stir one another up to love and good works. I need you, you need me. Okay, I have sins that you need to help me with. You have sins I need to help you with. All right? It's the same with a homosexual. They need help, just as you need help with your sin. And so we need to humble ourselves before God and before other people, and accept that help. Well, let me uh, just talk about a few objections that have come up. Uh, Some of these objections come from the homosexuals themselves. Some of them, sadly, come from people who call themselves evangelicals. Uh, There's, uh, in fact, there's one guy who calls himself an evangelical theologian, and and he's, he's written books advocating the gay rights movement. And he's using the Bible to try to prove it, (laughs) which is amazing to me. But anyway, so I'll I'll bring up some of these arguments, and we'll talk quickly about these, all right? Uh, One objection is that some people are born gay, so to speak. They're they're, they're born a homosexual. All right, that's one of the main arguments. Many homosexuals say they do not choose their homosexual orientation, but it's just a part of their DNA. It's a part of their gene makeup. It's the way they were born. They can't help themselves. It comes from birth. Therefore, they can't change. Their homosexual behavior can't be wrong because this is the way God made them. Ever heard that argument? Well, does the Bible have anything to say about that? And of course it does. Peter said that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And and that context is referring to his word. So yes, God has something to say about this. We just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that the the, the men who are practicing homosexuals, former homosexuals, remember Paul said, such were some of you. They had been practicing homosexuality, but they repented of their sin, and they, their faith was in Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit was washing them, regenerating them, and empowering them to do what's right. So obviously, God believes 
that homosexuals can change. Paul believed that homosexuals can change. The Bible clearly shows us that some people did change. This does not mean that homosexual desires are going to just automatically be eradicated from their life, though. I mean, you know what it's like, okay? You're a sinner just like I'm a sinner. (laughs) Your sin may be different from mine. It might be different from the homosexual sin. But you know the power of sin. Indwelling sin is still there with you, okay? Just because you repent of a sin doesn't mean the desire just automatically goes poof and, and, and never bothers you anymore, right? Okay? Whatever your sin is, that, that desire is going to be there with you probably for the rest of your life. And that's why Romans 6 says you've got to continually kill it, mortify it. So it doesn't mean that the homosexual desire is just going to go away just because you know, someone becomes a Christian. So becoming a Christian doesn't mean that people are no longer going to experience intense sinful urges. We need to be aware of that. We need to be humble enough to admit, hey, I struggle with sin. Why are we going to think it's any different with them? That's why they need help. They need encouragement. A second argument goes like this. There are some that argue that science supports the argument that homosexuality is determined by one's biological makeup from before the time of birth. Well, in answer to this argument, well, we just look at, I mean, for example, look at various studies that have done, okay? Uh, They've actually studied identical twins, all right? Identical twins got the same DNA, the same biological makeup, same parents, all right, from the same womb, Born at the same time. Identical twins. And, and, and they've done these, people of scientists have done these studies, and they find that, okay, you got one who becomes a homosexual, and the other doesn't become a homosexual. Well, why is that? Well, what does that show you? <laughs> it shows you that it's obviously not a biological issue then, Right? The moral teachings of God's word, by the way, is, is, is the final standard for what is right and wrong. God's word's the, the final standard for our faith and our practice. Not what people are feeling inside them. Well, there are various environmental factors that can increase whether somebody is going to become a homosexual or not. Okay, I'm not denying that, by the way. Uh, for example, sadly, one of, one of the big problems we have in our society is, is the lack of fathers. Okay, I mean, that's, you know, the statistics show us, which, which is why it's so important that, that children have fathers. The statistics show us that in those families where there's, there's an absence of a caring father during those childhood years or, or even sexual abuse, uh, oftentimes those children end up becoming homosexuals. There's a far greater percentage of homosexuals who had sexual abuse as a child or, or fathers who were, who were absentee fathers. So I'm not saying that the environment doesn't have something to do with it, okay? Uh, obviously it does. But again, it's not a biological issue. Okay, The issue here is, is uh, God's word. What does it have to say? The third objection here is to say that the biblical passages concerning homosexuality only prohibit certain kinds of sexual, homosexual conduct, such as homosexual prostitution or pedophilia or unfaithful homosexual relations. Okay, that's a mouthful, I know. Uh, anyway, those, that's one of the arguments. And, and this, this argument is called the exploitation argument. And let me just give you two biblical counter-arguments to the exploitation argument, okay? Number one, in Romans chapter 1, Paul clearly is echoing what was said in Genesis chapter 1. And Paul viewed that any sexual relationship that's uh, not conforming to the creation, uh, uh, to the creation pattern, if you will, which of course is male and female, 
is what? Paul and God calls it a violation of his will, of God's will. Again, if you look at Romans chapter 1, which we didn't read the whole passage, um, so, so turn there, please. I want you to see the whole thing. Uh, not the whole chapter, but I, I do want to read a few more verses. Romans chapter 1. So I want you to see what God says here. All right, so again, we're going back to the beginning. Even Romans is going back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and showing you the creation model. How did God design it in the beginning? So again, very, very important to know the foundation. All right, anyway, Romans chapter 1. Let's, uh, let's start reading verse 23 so we get, get more of the context here, okay? Uh, verse 23 says that uh, these people exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error end quote all right so paul's paul's quoting from genesis chapter one here how did God see this? How did the Apostle Paul see this? How did Jesus see this? Well, anything that's, that's not conforming to the model of, of male and female is outside of God's will. That's what Romans 1 is saying. All right, so, so the second uh, counter-argument here to this whole exploitation argument is this. Paul's absolute indictment against all forms of sexuality or homosexuality is... Um, is, is really underscored when he's mentioning, if you look at verse 26, he actually mentions lesbianism. Okay? A lesbian is a, a woman and a woman trying to be a married couple together. And, and Paul, Paul says here in verse 26, this lesbianism, a woman and a woman, is a form of, of uh, sin. This form of intercourse, by the way, in the ancient world was not typically characterized by sex with, uh, with either adolescents or slaves or prostitutes, but it was with the men, even in the ancient world. Um, but when you look at verse 26 here, uh, you got the, it mentions uh, God giving them up to dishonorable passions. You got women exchanged their natural relations. What's that? Well, that, that's a woman with a man. So they're, so they're exchanging that natural relation for those that are contrary to nature, which is women and women together. Well, some of us have even used Sodom and Gomorrah passage in Genesis 19 as trying to prove their point. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way, does not point to, uh, what they say is, that's not pointing to judgment on homosexual practice, really. They, they say it relates only to forced homosexual practice. That's, that's what some of the homosexuals are saying. So they're trying to use the Bible to prove, you know, hey, we, you know, some guy says, I'm, I'm committed to this one guy for life. This is my married partner here. What's wrong with that? God wasn't judging Sodom and Gomorrah for, for you know, guy, guy and a guy being committed to one another. It was... It was, it was the forced homosexuality conduct going on. Well, the Bible doesn't back that up. If you read Genesis 19, it indicates that there was homosexual conduct going on, yes. Uh, but it was, it was characteristic, apparently, of the entire city. It was very predominant, pervasive. It was primary reason for God's judgment. In fact, Jude, Jude verse 7, there's only one chapter, it proves it i got it on the screen here for you. Here's what Jude 7 says. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. 
So this, this was, you know, has nothing to do with forced homosexual activity. This was just their normal lifestyle for many of them. And so they're serving as an example of punishment here. Number four. Number four. Some object that the phrase in Romans chapter 1, that that phrase contrary to nature, shows that Paul's only talking about people who naturally feel desires toward a person of the opposite sex, but who then practice homosexuality. All right? In case you're not understanding the argument there. uh, You know, it's, it's, it's those people who, uh, even, you know, they even could be married. They could be heterosexual, right? Could, you know, a man could be married to, to, to his wife, but then he goes and practices homosexuality with a man. Is that what that's talking about? Is that the, what the phrase contrary to nature is referring to? Only that kind of activity? <laughs> well, again, when you look at Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it, it says that their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. So it's women and women, men and men. And according to this view, uh, you know, if, if you believe that, which I hope none of you do, but Paul's not saying anything about people who naturally feel desires for a person of the opposite sex, or or a person of the same sex, sorry. Because those desires, of course, are natural. God says it's natural to be attracted to someone of the opposite sex. But God's saying it's unnatural to be attracted to somebody of the same sex. And so somebody who, who tries to use Romans here to try to prove their point of the gay rights agenda, well, they're actually reading into the text here. They're trying to say, make Romans 1 say something it's not actually saying. It's interesting, when you actually look at the words in the text, look closely. Because it doesn't say contrary to their nature. Do you see the word there? The word there is not there. It doesn't say contrary to their nature. No, that's not what it says. It says contrary to nature, just nature in general, the way God created us. And by the way, that, 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 uh, that phrase is used several times in, in other Greek literature outside of the Bible. And interestingly enough, when it's used outside of the Bible, that, that phrase contrary to nature, do you know how it's used? You know, you probably don't, so let me tell you. Um, it refers to all kinds of homosexual conduct as something that's contrary to the natural order of the world. So even outside the Bible, that's what it means, okay? Uh, so you really got to read into it to, to come up with this argument. All right, well, the final objection or argument is this. And it's, it's really the argument from experience. If you have nothing else to rely upon, what do you do? Well, here's my experience. <laughs> How can you argue with that? All right? So, so some homosexual couples have faithful, fulfilling relationships, so why should these be thought of as immoral? Good question. Why should they be thought of as immoral? By the way, what is the standard here? What is the standard? Is your experience the standard? Is that what you base on what is right or wrong? Your experience? Or is there something else that's sure and final? Of course there is. God's word is the final authority here. Not my experience or your experience or anyone else's experience. Many studies, by the way, indicate that long-term homosexual relationships are actually uncommon. It's not a common thing. In fact, uh, the, the studies, if you, if you want to bore yourself by reading all the studies, the, the, they, many of them end up having hundreds of so-called partners. They're not committed, most of them. It's a rare thing for them to have one sexual partner for their life. And by the way, uh, harmful, there are many harmful results of homosexual conduct. Uh, there's immense damage to the family structure of our society. That's one. 
I mean, they're, they're destroying the, the basis of our society. Um, they also are hurting themselves. Various studies have shown a significant reduction in the life expectancy of homosexuals, uh, particularly the males. They're not living very long. Why is that? Apparently, part of God's judgment is, you know, <laughs> they're reaping the consequences of their sin, in other words. All right? Well, last question I want to look at, because too often, frankly, particularly in New Zealand, we look to the government as our savior, and government is not our savior. The solution is not government. The solution is not to have John Key sign up and, and declare that marriage is only between a man and a woman. Now, sadly, there's, there are some states in the United States, and, and even Christians looking to, to their state governments thinking, hey, that's the solution. And I'm not saying don't do that, but that's not our Savior. It's not the solution. So, so that my question is this, should government recognize same-sex marriage? <laughs> well, I, I don't think they should, by the way. I don't think they should recognize it, but they probably will. Eventually, if Jesus Christ doesn't come soon, it's probably going to happen. But the Bible says that one role of civil government is to praise those who do good and then to punish those who do evil, according to Peter and also the book of Romans. That's our civil government's responsibility. And, and we should do everything we can as uh, citizens of this earthly kingdom that we live in to, to, to be good citizens and you know, tell your MPs, tell the prime minister, do what you can. All right? But don't look to the prime minister and the government and all the other MPs as your savior. Government recognition of a relationship as a marriage carries with it an endorsement. And it's also going to carry with it an encouragement of that relationship. So we don't want government going out and recognizing same-sex marriage. Because what's, what's that going to accomplish? It's going to be an endorsement, an encouragement of that sin, isn't it? So obviously we don't want that. Uh, so why do we want governments saying that marriage is between a man and a woman? Why do we want that? Because that's encouraging the basis of our society. It's encouraging what is godly. It's encouraging what is the image of God. And so when governments go out and, and recognize same-sex marriage... Um, well, they're not encouraging what is good, are they? They're encouraging what is evil. And in the process, we've got, uh, we've got children who are growing up without mothers, children growing up without fathers. We've got all sorts of horrible situations going on. Government recognition would, uh, of course, soon carry with it a prohibition against other things. For example, uh, eventually it's going to lead to, to them trying to invade the church and saying, hey, you as a church, you need women pastors or homosexual pastors. All right? it's, eventually it's going to lead to intrusion into, into our lives as Christians and saying, hey, you're intolerant. You can't have in your church constitution that homosexuals can't be a pastor. That's not right. You can't do that. And so that, you know, that's, that's what it's going to eventually lead to, all right? So we need to do everything we can to stop it. But again, I'll remind you, we don't look to government as the Savior. Jesus Christ is our Savior. The gospel is the solution to this problem. All right, let me, let me just wrap this up by making a few statements. Okay, hopefully, hopefully this is clear, but I want to make sure you understand. All right? Homosexual conduct of all kinds is, is consistently viewed as sin in the Bible. It is against God's will, all right? uh, despite the fact that there are some who have tried to reinterpret the Bible. Um, the reinterpretations of the Bible do not give a satisfactory explanation of the words or the context. Uh, all you have to do is read read the context, read the definition of the words, and, and you'll, probably, you, you'll probably get God's answer on that. Okay, If you don't, you, you can come and talk to me about that. But 
Uh, We also need to recognize that sexual intimacy is something that should be confined to marriage and only to marriage. It is inappropriate and unbiblical outside of marriage. And and the marriage and the sexual relationship should be confined to one woman and one man who have committed themselves together for life. Hopefully we understand that's what God defines marriage as. The church, by the way, should always act with love and compassion toward homosexuals. Their sin is no different from your sin. Okay? So we need to be gracious to them as God is gracious to us. Uh, but at the same time, let me remind you that, uh, that we as a church and we as individual Christians should, should uh, not endorse their conduct. We should not endorse their sin. Okay, that's not appropriate either. We should never forget that government is not our Savior. Jesus Christ is our Savior. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what is going to offer them hope. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what's going to change them. And that's what they need. So... There is forgiveness of sins. Homosexuality is a sin. There is real hope. They can be transformed, uh, no matter whether they're a homosexual or any other type of sinner. So praise God for the hope that is offered to us through salvation and through the gospel of Jesus Christ.